1: It got to such a point, you know, I'm skipping over a lot of the middle of the sto- of this story, but it got to the point where, you know, I had doctors telling me, you, you're going to die if you keep doing this. You know, I almost had a stroke and my blood pressure was so high and I was just like, I would be running and I would just like start blacking out. I mean, I, my health was just, just as you know, if you're in active addiction, like you could just like die at any minute. And I would think to myself, you know, I've lived an awesome life. I've done some great things, and maybe this is just what's meant to be for me. That is like what I thought in my mind. Instead of, I've got to do something so I don't die, I thought, it's not like I can tell somebody what's going on. So I guess I'll, I guess this is just what's (laughs) going to happen for me. And, you know, I kind of say it lightly because it sounds so crazy now looking back that I would rather have not failed on the outside. And just kept on moving at this ferocious pace, then slow down, figure out what was wrong with me, stop doing this and like grab my life back.
0: I'm Doug Bopes, personal trainer, best-selling author and entrepreneur, and I'm on a mission to help others become the best version of themselves. So I'd like to welcome you to the Adversity Advantage podcast, where we will help you use obstacles, failures and setbacks to give you that edge needed for success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life on how they overcame trials and turned them into triumphs. So please sit back, relax, and get ready to be absolutely blown away by some of the wisdom and stories you're about to hear. Welcome back to our episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bopes, and today's guest is Mallory Irvin. Mallory is a Kentucky-grown, Nashville-living dreamer who had a roundabout way of arriving at where she is today. From her time in the Miss America pageant to being a three time contestant on The Amazing Race, Mallory turned her passion for sharing her love of fashion, beauty, and life into a platform for impact. Today, she runs a global lifestyle brand that she founded in 2016, hosts the Living Fully podcast, and is the author of the new book, Living Fully Dare to Step into Your Most Vibrant Life. She encourages and inspires her dedicated following to seek joy and live fully. So let's get this conversation going and welcome Mallory Irvin the Adversity Advantage podcast. Mallory, what's up?
1: Hi.
0: <laughs> it's so good to have you on the show.
1: It's great to have you on the show. I know we've had an hour-long conversation off the podcast first, and we're just best friends already. So this is going to be really fun.
0: <laughs> I know. We've got a lot in common. I, I love the, the connection that we have on, on so many things. And yeah. it, what I really admire about you is that you've built this brand Called living fully, which is the name of your your new book. It's the name of your podcast. But it wasn't long ago that you were kind of living more empty, right? But when was the moment for you that you felt like you were actually living fully for yourself and not living for for others and the external validation? What was that oh, like? Oh
1: gosh! So yes, so you and I appreciate you reading my book too. That you told me off camera that that means a lot, but. You know, I write about that a lot in my book. It's like we don't arrive at these huge pitfalls in our lives just all of a sudden. It's really gradual. And what you just said, the external validation was a huge thing that led me to what happened in my life, which, you know, eventually, as you'll know in this podcast, I'm sure it like led me to post Miss America and doing reality TV and I wound up in treatment. And, you know, my addiction was a catalyst to this whole living fully Way of life for me, and then a brand w- which was built, you know, as a side note because I wanted the life first. <laughs> and I will say, like, to answer your question, you know, I started about seven or eight years ago in this online space of social media, and I realized that I was living fully. You know, sobriety is one step, and you feel like you just really weed out all of that bad. Like when you first get sober and you're out in the world and you're just living like life well again, you're not about to die. You're not trying to get your prescriptions refilled early. You're, you're just, you're feeling like so much better. And that's only the first step. So the second step, which unfortunately I think a lot of people in recovery don't take is how in the world am i going to live a full life now cuz sometimes you don't know how to because you've been using medicators and numbing out life for so long so i started in this world and i was showing on youtube videos just the behind the scenes of my life and on instagram and you know various social media and i started getting a lot of messages from people that were like i wish i could be as happy as you or i wish i could wake up every day with that attitude or I wish I could have the relationships that you have with your family or your spouse or whatever it was. It just seemed like I just kept getting mountains of messages of, what is this missing piece that like y- you have that I don't have? Teach me, just like you're teaching me how to do my hair and makeup and what to wear and what to cook for dinner. And that's when I realized, you know, because it matched to the inside the way that I was feeling. And clearly people were seeing it on the outside. And that's where I, I really felt that like I was living fully in my life. and. A lot of people ask like why I wrote the book. That was the reason I wrote the book too was because people kept asking like, what did you do? What is it? I wish I was just born like that. And I would always be like, no, 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 wait. I was not. I really, um, I went through a lot in my life and really pulled myself out of this really tough spot and then built what you see now. I think a lot of people think someone's just born that way and you're just not. You can use these pieces of adversity. You know, you love the word adversity. I do too. As such a catalyst for uh, living fully. So that was a long way to answer your question, Doug. But that is the answer.
0: Well, it was a, it was a great answer, and I loved how you you kind of brought up the external validation, matching the internal validation you already had about yourself, because that's going to be a great segue into where this all kind of started. Because it's interesting you share that you're sharing your stuff on social media, and people are like, "Oh, you look so happy on the outside," and you were you had these great relationships, you were taking care of yourself, but it wasn't long before that that you had the same kind of idea where on the outside looking in, your life was great. Oh, yeah. You're competing on the amazing race. You're winning Miss Kentucky. You are competing in Miss America. And on the outside, people are like, wow, like she's got it going on. Mm-hmm. But in inside, you're falling apart. So so walk the audience oh, yes. through what that was like. What you think kind of led to that and then how you crawled out.
1: Yeah. So, I was always an achiever. I always loved to do big things. I grew up in this small town in Western Kentucky and we lived on this huge farm with all of my first cousins. So, I was the oldest of 24 first cousins who were like my siblings. So, you know, as an oldest sibling, if somebody listening to this is an older sibling or you become a leader and you are the example and a lot of times perfectionistic tendencies can creep in. So, can you imagine? Like it's like I'm the big sibling of 24 kids cuz we lived on the piece of property. And it was only us. So I think early on in life, like I was valedictorian in my class. I was, I did every governor's school for the arts program and governor's scholar program. And and, um, then went on to do Miss America and all of these things. I was always an achiever. And I think that that's not a bad thing, but when it becomes your identity, which I was kind of like a superstar in our hometown, you know, it's this tiny town and I was a singer growing up and I sang at every wedding and funeral and county fair and festival that there was around. And I became looked at as a person that people, you know, I was I was a leader in my community. I was always achieving and I was praised for those things. And it didn't really go wrong for me until the, I would say, you know, what's kind of funny about my story too is I didn't drink or do anything until I was like 21. So I spent kind of my whole youth and Almost through college, as a sober person, just achieving, and I was a happy person. And I think anytime you introduce the element of you know drugs or alcohol, be it prescription medication like I was or something more hardcore, I think that it just starts to like kind of it just changes things. And it was about it was around that time that I feel I started having just this overwhelming feeling of if I stopped, achieving, then it was just game over for me, that this is who I was, it's who people expected me to be, my community and my family and myself. And that was the most important thing to me then, not being happy or not feeling good internally or fulfilled or what direction do I want my life to move in, but what types of outward achievements can I do next? And it got to such a point, you know, I'm skipping over a lot of the middle of the story, of this story, but it got to the point where, you know, I had doctors telling me, you, you're going to die if you keep doing this. You know, I almost had a stroke and my blood pressure was so high and I was just like, I would be running and I would just like start blacking out. I mean, I, my health was just, just as you know, if you're in active addiction, like you could just like die at any minute. And I would think to myself, you know, I've lived an awesome life. I've done some great things and maybe this is just what's meant to be for me. That is like what I thought in my mind instead of I've got to do something so I don't die. I thought it's not like I can tell somebody what's going on. So I guess I'll I guess this is just what's <laughs> going to happen for me. And you know, I kind of say it lightly because it sounds so crazy now looking back that I would rather have not failed on the outside and just kept on moving at this ferocious pace. Then slow down, figure out what was wrong with me, stop doing this and like grab my life back. So, you know, it took it took going to treatment for I thought whenever they dropped me off at treatment that they um, they would send me home because they would realize I didn't do drugs. (laughs) And I can still remember like my parents dropped me off because they could see that like something was wrong. My light like that I used to have was just gone. I I was just a totally different person and my life had just kind of really crumbled and it was just really dark for me. And I was becoming kind of like reclusive and I was just going nowhere and then my health was just crumbling and crumbling. And I thought like, oh, I showed up at treatment and they're just going to send me home because I don't do these types of drugs. And not only did they keep me there, but I was there for like five and a half months. (laughs) And it was the best thing that ever happened to me that I always thought I might keep a secret or I always thought this would be something that like I did, but then I moved on from. And when I decided to write this book, I knew it was critical to share this piece of the story because you know, I know that there are a lot of people out there that are probably struggling with something like I was and thinking, you know what, it's not that bad because everybody around me is doing it too. But you don't have to be homeless on the streets or doing heroin or, you know, these crazy things to be in the throes of Prescription drug or alcohol abuse, like you know that from being in the recovery world. I know your story's a little bit different, but I think so many people um, have one foot in this world and then one foot in the other world. And I thought I was one of those people, and I just wasn't. And it was so amazing that you know my parents had the wherewithal to see that something was going on, sent me to treatment because it was transformative in my life. A, I wouldn't be alive today, but B, I certainly wouldn't be living the life that I'm living today. It was. An amazing thing that that happened in my life. And um, I'm happy to share this part of my story because I think a lot of the people see a shining exterior and think there's no way that you would do something you went to something like that. But in reality, I did. And it was a great thing. So
0: Wow, congratulations to you on your recovery and your, thanks, your journey, Mallory. Thanks. And and your health seemed like it was completely falling apart. You were in your what, your mid twenties at that point, oh I my think. Oh gosh, yeah. And I know you said that you didn't start doing any drugs or anything until you were 21 and you were kind of sober, but to me it seems, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that you had another addiction that is addictive and that's validation, that is people's approval. And it seems that you could only accomplish so much in that world. Like the the ultimate thing of approval is competing in Miss America, right? If you think about it validation. (laughs) So do you believe that, I mean, because it seems like after that is when things kind of really started to fall apart. Do you believe that because you couldn't get more high off of the validation at that point that you were like- Oh, for sure. If you'd like a shortcut to better sleep, more energy and a calmer, more stable mood, then you should make sure you're supplementing with magnesium daily. Let me tell you why. About 75% of people are magnesium deficient. This deficiency can lead to higher levels of anxiety, irritability, trouble sleeping, and low energy. It can even contribute to foot and leg cramps while you sleep. The good news is that you can experience a number of positive health benefits from just getting enough magnesium, including better sleep, more energy, less irritability, and even a calmer mood. But to experience these health benefits, you have to get the right kinds of magnesium. The truth is, most magnesium supplements you'll find in health stores use only the two cheapest synthetic forms And this is why I recommend Magnesium Breakthrough by BioOptimizers. Their organic, full-spectrum magnesium supplement includes seven unique forms of magnesium that can help reduce stress and improve sleep. Simply take two capsules before you go to bed, and you'll be amazed by the improvements in your mood and energy levels and how much more rested you feel when you wake up. So for an exclusive offer for my listeners, go to magbreakthrough.com forward slash Doug. It's M-A-G breakthrough.com forward slash Doug and use code DOUG10 during checkout to save 10% and get free shipping. Again, go to magbreakthrough.com forward slash Doug and use code DOUG10 during checkout to save 10% and get free shipping. We will get you back to this episode of the Adversity Advantage in just one second, but first wanted to give a quick shout out to Danette May and Earth Echo Foods. Danette was a past guest on the podcast and shared her incredible story and how it inspired her to create her products such as Cacao Bliss which I take every day, either in my coffee or in a smoothie. It starts with 100% organic cacao beans that are naturally kissed by the sun, maintaining its miraculous health benefits. Then it's blended with turmeric, MCT oil, coconut, Himalayan sea salt, cinnamon, and black pepper for the perfect blend to make you feel the best you ever have. The result, fall in love with a truly decadent, healthy, guilt-free chocolate, removing your cravings, facilitating weight loss, boosting your energy, and reducing your inflammation with one simple drink not only that, it is friendly to keto, gluten-free, paleo, vegan, and vegetarian diets. So go to earthechofoods.com forward slash Doug Bopes. Again, earthechofoods.com forward slash Doug Bopes. Check it out for yourself and learn more about the amazing benefits of Cacao Bliss. And when you enter in the promo code Doug at checkout, you'll get 15% off.
1: For sure, because I always had to top the things. And while Amazing Race was really great, it was kind of a like for fun thing. And it's not like, you know, holding, I loved titles. I loved that I, you know, valedictorian felt like a great title. Miss Kentucky felt like a great title. Like all of these things I just collected in my life and I just held them up as this is me. This is who I am. Make sure you know this about me. Like before we start this conversation and that is absolutely an addiction. And it was an obsession for me. And it definitely took the place of what later on became a a real addiction. But it's uh, just like we were talking about at the beginning of the podcast, it never starts as just, oh, I'll pick up a drink or I'll, I need this to numb out the pain. It's like the pain is there for some reason. And that's definitely what it was. And it's really hard, I think, when it starts out as something that can be deemed a good thing. I mean, who doesn't like achieving and success. I think it's a fantastic thing to have goals and to reach for them and to achieve things, big things that you never thought you could have achieved before. But it's the moment that it becomes like if I don't do this, if I come in second place, it is the absolute worst thing that could ever happen to me. And it becomes an obsession just to win that thing or to achieve that thing or to meet that goal more so than it did of like why you were doing it in the first place that it's a problem. And it was, that was certainly that for me. But yes, I couldn't achieve anything bigger than that in my head. And then, like, as I started slipping and sliding, and just like, I'd really lost my direction to, like, after Miss America. And I think when you achieve something big like that, that you didn't expect to achieve in your early 20s, It feels very much like you're in a different phase of life than a lot of my friends were just they were just interns and starting their careers and stuff. And I was doing this big shiny thing on this stage. So I think a lot of people start looking to you and expecting, what is she gonna do next? Like how exciting that she did that. And a lot of people could deal with that pressure and just be like, Yeah, that's cool that people are looking and maybe I'll do something and maybe I won't, but not me. I had to figure out something to do next so that they could all see something else on the level of what I had done. And it was hard to find that at 24, 25, 26.
0: Yeah. And, and there's certain things like you said that are meant to be good and that are good, but sometimes we just end up, it's a slippery slope and they be, start becoming bad for us. And that's where I think that the term addiction comes in where you're using, continuing to use something despite like the bad consequences that come with it.
1: Exactly. And it's hard to see.
0: It is hard to see. But I think the beautiful thing about not just getting into recovery, but doing like inner work on yourself and practicing self-awareness is that you get better at noticing when it's starting to impact you in a negative way.
1: Yes. And and it does take... It, it, sometimes it takes someone from the outside to see that too. And there's a story in my book. I don't know if you remember this story, but... I had been in treatment for a little while, like, you know, a couple months and I'd really, you know, here I was, I was sober and detoxed, and I'd peeled back a lot of layers and I was feeling really good. And it's kind of funny because at the place that I went to, I had become like the shining star of the treatment center. (laughs) And so I'd just kind of like taken the life that I'd had outside of it and, and I had become this person in the center. And I don't you know, a lot of these facilities, like they have things like chapel or like they have these things where the whole facility will kind of come together. And we had that every Sunday and it was just this amazing thing. And I sang at it every time and people looked forward to it. And it was just, it was really cool. And so about halfway through treatment, I was like doing good work and everything was great. The, like the VP of the whole place came into one of my therapy sessions and I was like, what is he doing here? Like, do I get to go home? <laughs> <laughs> and they decided, he looked at me and he said, um, we're going to take another step in your journey of recovery and you will no longer be singing in chapel. And I was just outraged and could not figure out how in the world this would help me in my recovery. And looking back now, besides like getting into treatment in the first place, that was the pivotal moment in my Success and in my transformation. Because you can take something that's so tiny and seems like this great quality, singing in church. I mean, who would think that was a bad quality? But I was hanging on to that as the last vestige of who I was. And I needed people to see me as different and special and talented. And when they took that away from me, and I felt bottom of the barrel, average, bare, like nothing that was when a whole new level of recovery started for me. So I'm actually very passionate about these attachments and these you know addictions are one thing, but we can become attached to things that that don't kill us like a drink will <laughs> if, if you're drinking them like we did. And I think a lot of people don't talk about that or think about that. But it took somebody outside of me to spot that in me, to take that away from me, and it was a huge Pivot for me, and one that I still think about is like one of the keys in my recovery, and it's something that I can still even see things this this day and age when I am living fully, I can hang on to things that are good things like being a certain type of parent or making things look a certain way in my home, but I can cross the line into being a little bit obsessive about that, and I'm like, what is the motivation behind this because it seems like it's a great thing, of course it's a great thing making a home and and being a mom, but if you can become aware of when those things are taking the place of something else or you're hanging on to those things for another reason, besides just doing them out of the good of your heart, it can be really powerful.
0: And I'm so glad you brought that story up because I had it on my list to talk to you about because I felt that that was the moment in my eyes that I understood that was when you were kind of living fully empty was when you had that Kind of stripped away from you, and you were just completely naked, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, where you just had nothing left um anymore, and you were forced to deal with these unhealthy attachments and I, I want to dive more into that because I think this is something that's important because like it's you can you can get sober and you can get rid of the drugs or the alcohol, but if you're still attached to always being in a relationship, if you're still attached to validation, if you're still always attached to other people's approval like that will not only become an addiction, but you'll be more susceptible to fall back, I think, into an addiction to deal with that if you don't have a healthy relationship with it. So what were some of your, I mean, we've gone over, I guess, the approval and the validation part, but what were some of the other unhealthy attachments that you had to kind of relearn and, and how did you create new healthy ones?
1: So my whole book opens with this story about, I was probably 30 days or 60 days into treatment. And for 10 years, I'd had these hair extensions, permanent hair extensions in and my hair extensions were coming out. I was gaining weight. Like I was just falling apart on the outside. And outside validation for achievements and success is one thing. But outside validation for appearance was something else that I felt like I didn't realize what a hold it had on me. I'd never been like the prettiest one. You know, beauty was not like my thing. I was always talented and I always I was uh, you know a leader growing up and stuff like that. And when I did Miss America it wasn't because like of looks. It was because talent was 35% of the score. I was a good speaker. I I had some other things that could give me some points. You know, I don't have the longest legs in the world and my sister is definitely the prettier of the two. But I guess after Miss Kentucky and Miss America That had really started to play a bigger role in my life than I realized. So they sent me off campus to a hairdresser to take these hair extensions out for the first time in 10 years. Like whenever I'd had my hair extensions removed before, for 10 years before that— I would sometimes have them done like in the middle of the night. It would be like nine o'clock. The shop would be closed and I would go in. They would take them four hours to take them out. They would then color my hair for two hours and they would take them three more hours to put them back in. It was, I never went one second without this long blonde hair. And when they took those extensions out of my hair, it was like, It was an out of body experience for me and which is why I opened up the whole book with this story because it was such a, sounds so bizarre to think that when they're taking these fake strands of fake hair out and laying them on this little, that it could be such a huge thing that it was so like earth shattering for me. And I went back to the facility and I was so upset. And also like she had highlighted my hair and it was just really bad. It was fried. I mean, I looked sick. Like my hair just was terrible. And I went back and I just remember being so angry. Like, is this what recovery is? Is it? Do you want to make us look like this and feel like this so that nobody wants to be with us or around us to pull us back into the ways that we were before? Are you trying to like strip everything from all of us, so that we just become these average, bare, awful people. I was so angry. And I remember telling my, you know, the person, what do they call them? Like the person that's at the front that makes sure all the doors are locked and they give people their medicine. And they like, you know, I told her, I was like, you know what? i would never done an illegal drug in my life, but I want to go down the mountain and do like a heroin or something, because if this is what life's going to look like in recovery, like I might as well do the strong stuff. And, I just felt so awful. That's like one of the worst moments that are the worst I've ever felt like in my whole life. So attachments to our appearance, I know you have a lot of female listeners, whether it be like the way that your body looks, weight loss, whether it be your hair or your face or the way you do your makeup or those things can be something that just have such a hold on us from the time that we are young girls until we're 80 years old and I still see it today in a lot of people that I'm close to that are maybe women in their 60s. They say things like, hey, you know, hang on to your beauty and your youth because once it's gone, it's gone. It always makes me so sad to hear that because having gone through recovery and what I've been through, I just know that it's it's about so much more than that. And I know that those women that say that, they feel that. They they do feel that once their beauty faded and that outward appearance went that they felt less than. And that makes me sad. And it also makes me happy that I went through this journey of really stripping my attachment to my appearance away in the best way that I could. And you know what's so funny is before we shot my book cover, they were like, do you want to put in permanent extensions again? Because I've never had them since. You know, I've been in recovery for eight years or so. I always wear this like halo thing so you can take it in and out. And I was like, no, I can't I can't do that. Like I can't put them back in. It was such a big deal to, to take them out. And it's still, um, that was a really pivotal moment for me too. And um, I think as women, we continue to, we have to fight that off a lot in our lives. You have to fight it off when you're postpartum. You have to fight it off as you, your skin starts to age. And I'm really thankful that I had the learning lesson of that that I did in treatment, who would have thought that like I would do work around that? But th- that was a big piece for me. That was big for me.
0: Yeah, it's a, it's a huge thing, and especially when a lot of your addictive behavior and it seems like your addiction to the even to the substances stem from this need for approval and external validation. I think like letting go of something that was part of that identity was hard for you to do. And with that said, like, what has been some of the things? Because I know, like, you and I were both on the team of non-traditional recovery, where we don't. Yes, we are. We don't go to twelve-step programs and, and that sort of thing. Like what has been, what have you done? Like what kind of work have you had to do on yourself so that you don't fall back into the pattern of continue, continually seeking external validation or approval or even slipping back into uh, to addiction, um, living in the world that we live in now? Like what are some of the stuff, the things that you've, you've done over the last eight years to work on yourself so that you can live fully?
1: I think, and to each his own, you know, I know you and I both think that a lot of people, like the rooms work for them. And in early recovery, like we had to do a 90 and 90 and we did... We did those recovery meetings all through treatment. So I'm very familiar with the uh, 12 step programs and Doug and I were both talking off camera at the 12 steps can be amazing for anyone to do. Like there are certain parts of recovery rooms that are, I think accountability and friendships and, and the 12 steps in general, those are great things. So I'm not knocking those rooms. However, I didn't like when I went in those rooms and they told me, if you don't come into these rooms, you will not stay sober for one more year. Because I was like, I don't, mm, I don't know that that's true. <laughs> I, I just don't feel that that's true. I don't like that you're using that as a tactic to keep me in the rooms. Shouldn't you be showing me how you live a full life and how you're happy in recovery instead of telling me... If you don't do it this way, you will fail. I didn't love that. And like I said, I'm not trying to knock the 12-step programs because I think they're amazing and they're great resources for a lot of people, especially people without a community. That's an amazing community. Sponsorship is great. You know, it's great for a lot of people. For me, I found an amazing therapist that it took me going through three therapists to find an amazing therapist that has been by my side for seven years. That is a huge, huge thing for me. Also, though, knowing my patterns and when I'm starting to spin into emotional relapses is a really big thing for me, too. So, my therapist is someone that can point it out. But then there are also people in my life, like my husband, I have great friends, that say, you better slow down. Or, um, you know, if you keep moving in this, with this. Fast of a pace, you're not going to be able to keep it up or you're going to end up here. For me, I think that the people that you surround yourself with is such, you, you probably learned that in recovery and in transforming your life in such a big way too. You cannot go back to the same groups of people doing the same things, talking about the same things. So for me, surrounding myself with the right people having an amazing partner. So whether that's a counselor or a therapist or a friend or the rooms of AA, I think you have to have someone that you can talk to when you are going through the rougher spots because I can tend to like spiral. It's just, I'm very, got a very addictive personality and I, and I do things all the way. So when I start to spiral about something, like I will spiral all the way. And those are two amazing tools for me. Having a platform on social media that's very forward-facing where a lot of people see the shiny parts of the things that I do. That's something I have to really keep in check of what am I portraying on here? How am I feeling about the way that people are validating me and direct messages and stuff like that? And a lot of times when I feel like I'm on shaky ground, I do not check direct messages. Because I know that if I come across one that's going to throw me for a loop, I'm not in the right spot to handle it. So not torturing yourself with things like that uh, and going in and looking for things that people are saying to you that maybe you can't, you aren't in an emotional spot to handle. Um, And then just really trying every day to show up authentically in the space of social media, that's something that I strive to do every day. And if you watch my Instagram stories, I am no makeup, like in the morning, like it is, it's very much real life because I want people to see real life. A lot of people in the space of social media, you know, they show a very polished version of life and there's no, um, there's nothing bad about that. But me and I know in recovery it's very important that the inside matches the outside and that I'm showing things authentically on the outside. so that's another way I have to keep myself in check. I have to make sure I'm showing them the real life and the real stuff because that's what I can offer to people. If you polish everything up and only show them the good stuff, you're not only doing yourself a disservice but you certainly are doing your community community a disservice and to have all of those eyes and ears facing you and you have an opportunity to like really make a change for people and then you just show them all the perfect stuff. I just feel like it's such a uh it's such a shame uh, when people waste that opportunity and do that. So that's another thing that I strive to do to stay in recovery because that authenticity is very important in recovery. Yeah. I also like I don't keep anything in my home really. I, I've never really had a moment though where I've thought in the last eight years, like, I'm gonna pick this up again. I feel very grateful that once I got out of treatment and like began living my life, I felt I I did not want it again. I felt like life was so much better that I definitely picked up other obsessions about things. And, you know, I've emotionally relapsed a a time or two, I'm sure, but I've never been like, you know what, I've got to find a way to get this prescription again. Or like, maybe I'll just have one drink. And I feel grateful for that because I know a lot of people do have to battle that a lot. And who's to say, maybe I'll battle it in the future, but I haven't, I haven't yet.
0: Yeah. And I think a lot of what you said is, is so important for people to hear. It doesn't matter if they're in recovery or not. You talked about going to therapy. You talked about having good relationships in your life. You talked about surrounding yourself with the right people. You talked about having a platform. You talked about self-awareness and knowing when the validation or what people are saying to you can impact you in a negative way. You also talked about like just being authentic and being real and being raw, and I think these are all things that over time, if you are consistent, are consistent with them, will allow you t- to grow and become the best version of yourself. And I want to touch on like parenting because now you have, you have two kids, yeah. right?
1: Yes. Do you have children?
0: I don't. Just okay. me, just me and I, I have a dog, but. Uh,
1: hey, that's the that's the gateway drug,
0: is right? That, <laughs> is that the gateway drug? <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, to kids. No. <laughs> <laughs> So with that said, like, have you, have you thought, like, have you implemented anything differently in your parenting, knowing that you grew up in a world where you were so fixated on approval and external validation? And now we live in this world where it's so easily acceptable to look for validation, look for approval with social media, with technology, like, like as a parent, like how have you adjusted?
1: Yeah. So I have two boys and they're two and three. So while I'm not in the throes of dealing with these issues that a lot of kids tend to have once they start getting into grade school, middle school, high school, you certainly can parent a certain way, I think, to nurture your kids in one direction or another. I definitely though, Doug, think, and like you'll see if you have your own kids one day or if you're around kids, kids are just born the way they are. Like I have one child that is a true first child. He is the leader. He is the boss. He wants to read every rule on the side of everything. He is such a first child. He's a shining star. He loves to talk. He loves to sing. He's just my second child is like a feral cat. He, you could turn him loose in the backyard, in the forest, and he could live on his own. He would, he'd be fine, not talking to anybody, and he would be. He's just wild. <laughs> he's just a different kid, and I love them both for who they are. So I think. So I'm one of four children. Um, I have a little sister and two little brothers. And my parents did this with us in an interesting way. And I, I don't think a lot of parents think to do this, but my parents parented all of us totally different, totally different. They parented me different than they did my sister, than they did my brother, than they did my youngest brother. And I think that sometimes when you're making rules for your life or rules for the way you're gonna do your business or rules for your house, you just make them the same for every situation and everything. This, these are the people that we are. But I know that... And especially, like from my own life, growing up as a perfectionist that was this certain way, and then my sister was the total opposite they're like kids are different, and they need different things, so I really try and parent my kids the right way for the way that they are, and you don't want to do it, I don't think in a way that it seems that you're one rule is for one person, but one rule is not for another person, but I do think you have to be cognizant of the the individuality of your kids and nurture the things that they like to do and and not put them all in the same box so I try to do that as a parent but you know my husband is really good about this another thing that we tried to do as a parent Ford is my oldest son's name if he doesn't do something well or doesn't do it right you know telling him that's okay and you know you you know it's okay if you didn't come in first place or it's okay if you got out of the lines when you're coloring that picture um I can't remember when I was two or three, but I can't imagine that my family told me that it was okay if I came in second place. They told the other kids that, I think, but I was held to a different standard. And it wasn't, I have a, an amazing family, like, and still today, like, they can do no wrong. But but that is something that I, it definitely was not okay for me to make a B in school while my sister made Cs. <laughs> like, And, you know, I... I definitely think that letting kids know that it's okay if you're not, if you don't come in first place and do everything perfectly, but verbalize that in the moment. That's something that we try to do with our kids. Um, And two, like when you have a job where you're on social media stories or you're doing Instagrams or TikToks or YouTubes, there's always a camera around because videoing your everyday life is your job. It is something that I've had to be cognizant of because we're seeing all these studies about all these kids that are around all these phones. I'm really trying to carve out time where I'm not on my phone around my kids. And that's a struggle. And I hate to admit that that's a struggle for me, but it is. And I think that it is for a lot of parents just having this kind of hands-free way of life, like when you're around your kids. But showing them undivided attention and 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 giving them me and my husband giving them him without a phone in our hands, that's something we try to do too with parenting.
0: Yeah, and I, well, I think you brought up some, some points that are super relevant. And that's the fact that like A, like now your kids might not be at the age where they might not experience a lot of the different struggles that certain kids do, but you're at least now aware of what how you're going to parent and what you're going to do differently and how you're going to handle each of your kids based on their personality type. And also doing the hard thing in, in setting boundaries for yourself and being aware of like, all right. Like I know right now I'm in the middle of a book launch. I know I'm trying to build this brand and support my family and do all these things, but I also have to set aside time to just chill and turn off technology and that's hard. Yes,
1: yeah, because I always felt like slowing down and doing nothing was just, that was no man's land for me. I was not going to go there. I felt like that was the absolute worst thing that you could possibly do. Just like sit around and be. I would always be like, no, no way. Like, I wanted to move 100 miles an hour all the time. And that's something else I've had to do as a parent. I cannot fill every second of the day with work or whatever it is. I We have got to just exist as a family. We've got to turn it off, even if it's not done. And that's something that's hard for me because I tend to always want to move 100 miles an hour. And I've learned in recovery, like, that's one of my triggers. Busyness. I just... I, I I like to do a lot of things, but sometimes that's one of those good things that we talked about earlier in the podcast that can turn on you if it goes too far. So I, I don't want my kids to be, especially in this day and age where every kid is doing violin and 10 languages and football, basketball, baseball, and art. It's like, I I don't want my kids to think that they have to hustle, hustle, hustle for our approval or for the world's approval. They just, they don't. And I hope to be able to convey that as a as a parent. I also want to be able to like live a full life and them to see that as they grow up because I think that there's no more important thing that you can do in front of your child than just live authentically and be happy and have a good marriage and all of those things that people think are sidebars, but I think they're front and center that kids really pay attention to that kind of stuff,
0: yeah, they say that you know kids learn by by seeing and by by doing, not just by what you're telling them to do, right? I mean, there's a lot of stuff I think that's come out about that. When it comes to like living fully, I know you talked about in your book that it's easy to live fully when things are good. I want to talk about living fully when things aren't so good. And there's a lot of people that when they have a bad day, the bad day becomes a bad two days, becomes a bad week, and then sure enough, they look back, it's been three weeks, they've been in, in despair because of certain choices they've made in response to that situation. So what are, this, what are some of the things that you do when you're, you're having a bad day or you get some bad news or something that doesn't go your way that helps mitigate the adversity, helps you get through that time in a way that you feel that you're living fully and maintaining your integrity?
1: Well, first off, I remember that ad- adversity has been an amazing driver to the life that I live today. And it's an amazing driver and builder of the greatest people that I know around me, my grandparents, my parents. If we look around at all the people that we admire, whether they be an author or a podcaster or like some old person in history, adversity is always a part of their story. And it's one of the reasons that I wrote this book, Doug, that I think our generation wants an easy ride. They don't want to, they they want to either numb it out or they want to live it on the surface or they want to watch somebody else live it. They certainly do not want to do the hard stuff. However, the hard stuff is what builds the best among us. And in my life, I've seen it, but had I not had that happened to me, I would have lived a surface-level life. I would have been like pretty happy, but never the deep stuff. So I remember first off that adversity built me and like opened up this beautiful life to me. Same with my husband, same with my my grandparents. Oh my gosh, my grandpa and like I'm sure everybody's grandparents have just these stories that are full of so much tragedy and triumph and just flat out hard life, hard times. So I remember, whether it be my own story or whether it be someone around me, that if I do this the right way, it's going to lead to the good stuff. It is the tunnel of the cheerleaders running out onto the football field. It leads to the good stuff in your life. That's one thing that I do. I also, it's really important to me to shorten the distance between like that that thing that grabs you by the neck and it wrestles you to the ground and it's you know whatever this thing is that happens and it can be something that doesn't seem that bad that can really affect you like someone sends you a terrible message on social media or you're getting bullied at school if you're a young person or you don't get into the school that you want to get to or your spouse has an affair or you lose your job or you you know it can be anything from one end of the spectrum to the other. And you don't have to compare, you know, what that thing is that happened to you and say, well, somebody else had this. It's so much worse. Perspective is an amazing thing, but keep perspective about perspective too. So something that I try to do is I try not to stay there for long. I'm not talking like brush it under the rug, but I'm, I'm talking, I don't want to, it's not going to serve me to sit and keep thinking about that terrible thing that happened to me or that someone said, I immediately try to think, you know, how am I going to get out of this? How am I going to use this adversity like to to build a better life from this rubble? And I know that really depends on what the situation is, because if you're climbing out of a hole that is your spouse is having an affair, that's a lot different than can I get over this bad comment on social media? So it's going to look a lot different depending on what that is, but just wanting to lessen that time and spend less time in these pitfalls and more time like climbing out of them and, and living life on the other side the biggest thing that i do and i wrote it's actually it's the last chapter in my book it's called curveballs and the whole chapter is about how you're going along in life and everything is good or fine or whatever it is in your life however whatever good is to you i want it to be fantastic that's why i wrote this book so read the book and you'll see how to get there hopefully but you know people are just going along in their life and then something unexpected happens and it's this curveball and the story in my book is actually I was in a serious relationship, and the relationship ended. He, he broke up with me, and it was such a shock. It was such a curveball. I had everything invested in that. This was when I was Miss Kentucky and kind of in the middle of the journey toward the perfectionistic stuff, and I learned through that experience and through ones since then in the last eight years in recovery that... When we have these things happen to us, so many times we just want to expel, we just want we just want to get rid of the feeling. So we make these bizarre decisions like either, you know, say you just get broken up with, you just want to find somebody else because you just want the feeling to go away. Or say you lose your you know, you lose your job and you just make some bad decision just because you just want the feeling to go away. And I think that if we can make the next decision, post-curveball or adversity like you call it, if we can make that decision from a place where we can just t- think just a little bit about what are my values, like who, who am I, who was I before this thing happened to me, what are the things that I value in my life or that I want to create in my life, if you can make a more intentional decision as those first decisions post-adversity, I think it can be such a powerful powerful thing and it's the last thing anybody wants to think about is like what are my values once they've had this tough hand dealt to them but if you can lead with that and make your next decision out of that out of that I think that you can certainly live fully in the hard times because living fully is not Pollyanna. It's not happy, happy, joy, joy all the time. Living fully is living deeply and fulfilling and vibrant in the lows and in the highs. And that is the way that you live fully in the lows. You don't numb it out. You don't grab for something else. You think, who am I? Who was I before this thing happened to me? How can I make the best decision thinking those thoughts. And that's how I do it in my life. And that's why I thought so much of it that I spent a whole of the 17 chapters that or 18 chapters that I wrote, I spent a whole chapter on that. Because I think a lot of times people make bad decisions in moments of weakness. And their whole life can go in just a slightly different direction. But that is certainly not living the fullest life. Uh, I think you can live a lot better of a life if you can be more intentional about the decisions and the hard times.
0: For sure, and I love the the analogy to the curveball. I mean, I I use that a lot as well, where I say, you know, when life throws you a curveball, just sit back, be patient, and just swing. But I think a lot of times when curveballs come, people try to swing at it like it's a fastball because they're they're so quick to want to fix it. And what happens? What would happen if somebody swung at a fastball or swung at a ball they thought was a fastball? It was a curveball. They would miss, right? Yes. And and it's so and it's so true that sometimes when life throws you a curveball you acknowledge that it's there and you just be patient You're like okay it's here like what can I do in this moment how can I process this how can I respond who can I call mm-hmm. what can I do exactly And then you move through it like that and then what happens over time it'll become second nature to you when curveballs come To be more patient, to choose better coping strategies, to call that friend, to go on that walk, whatever the case may be, instead of swinging for the fastball.
1: Yes. And I think I learned it in sobriety because a lot of times, if you're not a sober person, it's very easy to reach for a numbing agent. So, you know, back in the day, that's the easiest way to get rid of, get rid of, get rid of until the next perfect pitch comes along. But now, like being a person in recovery, I had to figure out another way. And I think, too, that... It can be, not only is it really like powerful in the moment in um, just making a better decision and getting out of that adversity faster, but in the long term, your life is going to move so much more linear, like in the direction that you want it to move move in instead of just all of these random ways. Because like, say somebody breaks up with you that you thought you were going to marry and then you're just like, oh my gosh, I've just got to find someone else so I don't feel this. Then what if you end up marrying that person? <laughs> And it's the wrong person. And that's an odd example. Maybe like people don't think breakups are that big of a deal, but to some people, they are life shattering. That to me, like they've been very life altering. And yeah, it's something. It was a catalyst for something that I learned about curveballs. And I really like your analogy too, because I can just see that like just somebody just swinging at the curveball, swinging at the curveball. And it's so true. Like if, if you can just take the time and gain your footing again, you'll hit the ball again, you know?
0: Right. And a, a lot that the problem becomes, I think that people, they don't think they're ever going to be able to hit the ball again.
1: Exactly. So they're like, well, I just, I, I got to swing at this one. What if another one doesn't get thrown? Yeah. But it will, it will.
0: It will come. And I think sometimes the, un- the, the outcome that we put in our head of whatever uncertainty or fear we're, we're facing becomes greater than the fear or curveball Yes. That's in front of us.
1: That's such, I wrote a whole chapter on fear too. And you know, it was funny because it was the last chapter that I wrote actually. And I asked people on social media, I just did a poll and I said, what's the biggest thing that stands in your way to living a full life? And one out of like every two or three answers was fear, like fear of something or like, I'm afraid of this or I'm fear. And I thought, I've got to write a chapter on this because I think that perfectionism is like fear of what people are going to think. Fear of perception of you, fear of failure, fear. So uh, I, I wrote that chapter. It was the last chapter. And I'm so glad that I added that chapter because unfortunately in today's day and age, and I, and I was this I was this person, like as I started to kind of go into this act of addiction, I think we have, instead of fearing the loss of like, a vibrant life or a good life, of spending our one life happy and full, you, f- you fear adversity. So you don't take any risk. So you don't, it, it just, it blows my mind that we as a, as a culture avoid these amazing full lives because we're afraid of these little bumps in the road. and. Um, Fearing adversity will like put you right into a corner. And it's just such a shame because like we just talked about, and you're very passionate about, I'm very passionate about. Adversity is the key. It's not like a, oh, like, let me get through this kind of thing. Like, let me make it through this. It's like, I was made through this kind of thing. It is the key that unlocks the door to this vibrant life. If you let it be. And so why in the heck would you avoid it? Like, it hurts. Okay, I get it. But so does living like a halfway life forever. So I encourage people to take risks because if you win, great. And if you lose, fantastic.
0: <laughs> and it's I always I always say this too, is I say, would you rather get rejected by yourself because you believed in yourself enough? Or would you rather get rejected by someone else because you believed in yourself enough to try like to ask that person out, to ask for that job or whatever the case may be? Or would you rather reject yourself because you didn't believe in yourself to take that chance? And I think with adversity, you either choose adversity or adversity will choose you. You're going to face it no matter what. And if you're that person, like, I mean, I'm a trainer, so I look at it from the context of health. If you're somebody that sees it, the adversity and the hardness of um you see the, the losing weight or getting back into shape is hard like yeah it's hard but you know what else is also hard is not doing that and then 10 years down the road you end up putting on a bunch more weight maybe you develop some diabetes your blood pressure's through the roof maybe you end up having a heart attack or a stroke or you're, you're not able to walk up and down the steps like there's some adversity right there so it'll find you but it's, it's all it'll in the matter of it'll find you you just have to kind of put your foot down and and face it head on. So like Mallory, this has been amazing. I could talk to you.
1: Oh, you're great, Doug. Thank you. Thank you for having me on and for doing what you do. But just, you're a really great host. I can tell that you know the material. Like you have such a good memory. You ask the greatest questions. I I really enjoyed this. So I really appreciate you having me on.
0: Yeah, and I appreciated you taking the time and coming on. And I guess the, and for the kind words. So I think the last question I have is, You touched on fear. And so what I'd like to know is post book, like after you've written the book, like what has been something that you have experienced that's been fearful for you and how did you get through it?
1: Oh, I can't believe I'm going to say this on this podcast. (laughs) Um, I still have a little bit of the peace in me that wants to win the things, that wants the titles and wants, even though I know... I know that it's not everything. I still just have it in me. And I fear this book not doing well sometimes. I fear not making lists. I fear it not selling as many copies as I wanted it to sell. I fear not getting the press that I want to get. I'm fearful of that because I... I didn't have to write a book. Like, I carved out time to write this book. It was hard writing this book. I spilled, like, one of the biggest, the biggest secret of my life in this book. I just laid it all out. And I know at the end of the day, like, if it changes lives, it will absolutely be for something and not for nothing. I absolutely know that. That's why I wrote the book, number one. But the second piece of that is it took so much out of me that, and there are a lot of, you know, there are expectations on this book because I signed with a big publisher. I'm first time author, it was a big deal. I just, I get fearful that the book's not going to do well. And that's, you know, that's vulnerability of me. I'm showing you here on the podcast saying it out loud because I could act like, like it doesn't really matter to me, but I really want it to do well. So I'm actually still not through that. I have to kind of make it through that if I get disappointed by something along the way and I have to remember what I've learned about things of this nature. So I have to relearn that every step of the way. And I know this podcast is coming out the week of the book coming out. So who knows what this week will hold, but I get through that when I read a DM or I read a Facebook launch group post or I see someone on the street because people have been early reading my book already in this launch team. So I've already experienced this. And they tell me, like, they've read the book three times. Or they tell me, like, I'm living in legacy mode now. Or they tell me, like, I had no idea you went through that. I've had an eating disorder for 15 years. Or you made me a better parent when I read that story about your family. That is what gets me through the fear of this book not doing well on the outside. So, yeah.
0: Well, thank you so much for your vulnerability and for sharing that. And congratulations, you're human. Because uh, I think that's- every author, <laughs> I think every author goes through that, even though they might not admit it. Yeah, of course, it's going through people's heads like, man, like, I need to make this list. I need people to buy these books. Or is this chapter really that good? Are people yes. really going to read it? Or what's going to happen if it flops? Like, that's just the the human mind, you know, like, yeah. running the way that it does. And and I think it's normal to be concerned because, I mean, I think you just, you also, you care a lot about it. And I think it's special that you're able to at least acknowledge that and say that because there's a lot of, there's people that just wouldn't. They'd be like, oh, like, they would have picked something else. They wouldn't have said, like, the very thing that's even, that's front and center as this episode's coming out is yes. the book. <laughs>
1: because like they can see they're going to be able to see in a few days like if my fear comes true if my fear doesn't come true and yeah it's it's easier to grab the low-hanging fruit but that's truly the thing that I fear right now um and I want to be honest because you have a lot of honest conversations on your podcast so cool yeah
0: well thanks for your honesty Mallory and of course and thanks again for coming on so if people want to Buy the book if they want to connect with you on social, is the best place to do that through your website? Like where's the best place? Yes.
1: P- um my website, MalloryIrvin.com has the links to my podcast and my book and to my merchandise line and my YouTube channel, everything that we do. You can buy it from any retailer. It's available literally everywhere. I read the audiobook. So if you don't mind a southern accent and um haven't minded my <laughs> the way that I speak on this, the audio book is my favorite, my personal favorite. Um and if you like consuming audio with podcasts with Doug's podcast. I love listening to audiobooks. I'm a very audio listener. So I'll give you all those links so you can include them. But at Mallory Irvin is my Instagram handle. And we are on there all the time. It's at M-A-L-L-O-R-Y-E-R-V-I-N. And we have a YouTube channel. And a, uh, I reluctantly have a TikTok. Don't. <sighs> that one's hard for me. And we just do all kinds of things. So we're pretty much everywhere that you can type my name in. So Instagram's the biggest and then my website I would say you can find um, everywhere where you can buy the book or listen or do whatever you want to do
0: (laughs) amazing well I will make sure to include Um, the links to connect with you in the show notes. And for those listening, Mallory's story is amazing. Her vulnerability is super admirable. And what I'd like you to do is to share a takeaway. Maybe it was something that she said about her addiction journey. Maybe it was something that she said she had to do in recovery. Maybe it was something that she said about parenting. Maybe it was something that she said just in the last part of our conversation about certain fears that she's having right now. Whatever it was, tag her, tag myself, because we'd love to hear your feedback. And we once again, thank you For listening to this episode of the Adversity Advantage, I'm your host, Doug Bobst, and I'll see you next time.